Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I'm recording for Contrarian's Corner for Whiplash. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Julio. Julio, it is not quite yet Christmas Eve, but Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas, and honestly, this episode is supposed to drop, if all goes well, uh, December 31st. So, so in a way... A Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to those of you listening. Uh, you know, you should be quarantining, so listening to a podcast <laughs> as midnight approaches sounds like a pretty safe activity uh, to celebrate the end of Yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I was watching 30 Rock the other day, and it was like a New Year's episode, and I was like, Jesus, are there, there's going to be really people that are trying to go to Times Square for this shit. Uh, but, yep. you know, I not me. <laughs> somebody tweeted a picture of a Peruvian airport uh, earlier mm. today, and it looked like, I mean, people were wearing masks, but that's about the only thing that they were doing that was sensible. <laughs> they were just packed back to back. Yeah. I was uh, talking with this girl on a dating app and she was like, yeah, I'm flying home for Christmas. I was like, well, <laughs> that at least prolongs our chances of seeing each other by quite a bit of time. So whatever the case, yeah, it's a lot easier to just stay home. I know it sucks. I know you want to see your families, but staying home by yourself and getting drunk and playing video games is very underrated. I think people don't have an appreciation for that. Or listen to a podcast like this one and watch the movie that it's about. Or any one of our podcasting friends. watch Listen to one of their podcasts and then watch that movie. Uh, speaking of podcasting friends, uh, this was requested by someone in the podcasting universe, correct? That is One of our uh, patrons? Yeah. Uh, podcast universe and patron universe uh katie and ot from the for your reference podcast which alex i mean this is i guess a minor bit of real talk but they don't like this movie so they they submitted it i think well i don't think i know because even if we end up liking it we'll still get to talk shit about it for the first part of the show so so they win either way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's win-win for them well kt and ot this is uh their request so we hope you guys enjoy and we hope everyone else tuning in enjoys now if you're a returning listener we thank you if you're a first time listener uh thank you for joining our returning listeners give us a moment here while we explain our uh gimmick to the new the newbies here uh here on the contrarians we like to rage against the rotten tomatoes machine as we say like to find a movie on rotten tomatoes that is highly rated Usually about about eighty five percent and above. 
often known as certified fresh, make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a peg, maybe why it ain't so high and mighty. And then on the other side of the coin, on our alternating episodes, typically we find a movie that's about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches known as rotten, and make a case for its positive merits. And there is a lot to be found, uh, hence me purchasing Howard the Duck on Blu-ray after our last episode. (laughs) The best advertisement uh, money doesn't even have to buy you because we do this for free. Yeah, I was like... When we we were editing that, I was like, I got more mad than I did when we were recording. I was like, I've lived my whole life thinking this was some abysmal failure. And I was like, this movie is just a perfectly cromulent time. I had a great time watching it. Yep, that was my biggest takeaway. I was like, what else has public opinion lied to me about? What other terrible movies are actually perfectly fine movies that I would actually enjoy not just watching, but owning? See, like we talked about on that episode, though. The other movies that people told me to stay away from, Battlefield Earth, Geely, uh, you know, yeah, they were right. The, those are like <laughs> abysmal failures that have no redeeming quality. But yeah, man, uh, getting that Howard the Duck Blu-ray, the like the retrospective little documentary on it and everything, fantastic. And the the transfer was miraculous. And like I sent uh, I sent Julio the picture of it. I guess the Blu-ray I purchased, um, I got it off Amazon. It was like seven bucks. I think I bought it the night we recorded. I was like, you know what? This was fine. <laughs> um, I was reading the copyright and like the um, basically the timestamps on the back of it. And it looks like that Blu-ray was released in 2016. Um, it's still through Universal, but it had the, as I, I sent you the picture, Julio, it had the Marvel logo on the back that's used on all the Marvel <laughs> movies now. I let out a boisterous holler when I saw that. So that that's what we do here on The Contrarians. We, we, we love what you hate and hate what you love, and we find cases for them either one way or the other. And today, uh, with the movie Whiplash, the, uh, is it 2013, 2014, uh, Damien uh, Chazelle? I believe is the gentleman's name, written and directed by, uh, I mean, at now, in 2020, we can refer to him as an Academy Award winner. Not at this point in time, though. Uh, he's still kind of fresh to the game, and he entered the fray here, uh, the 2014 uh, film landscape with Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. and Oh, yeah, introducing J.K. Simmons. <laughs> and uh, certainly not least of which, Paul Reiser, just, you know, doing a favor for a friend in this movie and <laughs> this baby is rated 94 percent or uh has yeah comes in with a grade of 94 percent critical reception whatever terminology you want to use on rotten tomatoes so you know for this episode uh we're going to be taking it down a peg and bringing miles teller back to earth uh bringing him back down to the the fantastic four level of the world and <laughs> With J.K. Simmons, many, many moons ago, we talked about him and the ill-fated Juno. So it's a return to form for him here. Uh, With all that being said, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Julio, what were the critics saying about this? Uh, Critics were over the moon. Uh, I don't know how many of these reviews are from after the movie won Oscars and... I'm assuming it got like a, an award season re-release. I don't know how many people, how many critics jumped in bandwagon after that, but uh, picked a few fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, uh, starting with Yuri Klein from Haritz, uh, who says, 
Whiplash is cinema as a duel, fought not in an army barracks or an athletic training camp, but in the room where the orchestra rehearses its jazz numbers. Uh, that sounds pretty boring. <laughs> um, Alejandro Aleman from El Universal says, Whiplash is the most exciting thing that has happened to us in 2015. It came out in 2014, though. <laughs> so, it was after the fact. Also, the golden times when, uh, you know, pre-2020, when a movie's release was the most exciting thing that had happened anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what the hell else came out in 2014. Guardians of the Galaxy. That was more exciting. And there you go. Because it had a Howard the Duck cameo at the end. Exactly. There you go. The Hobbit. Interstellar. Uh, Alistair Ryder from Cinemol says, Dead Poet Society for Sociopaths. Which I pulled this quote because we were talking about Robin Williams in his serious roles uh, a couple episodes ago. So, I guess, can you imagine Robin Williams playing the J.K. Simmons character on Whiplash? I would say no, but I mean, I've seen one hour photo, so I know he can pull off (laughs) a, a litany of uh performances i mean probably robin williams was extremely talented so who am i to say he couldn't have done this problem is he there he still would have had some likable quality to him and have been like yeah he's not that bad i mean jk simmons tries to be likable a couple times here whether he succeeds or not we shall discuss <laughs> um and finally speaking of simmons uh asia frey from lacnipi Mobile Alabama says it takes Simmons as an actor from memorable to unforgettable. Was J.K. Simmons memorable before Whiplash? Or is she already overselling him? I mean, yeah. For uh, Jameson, that's he entered our hearts and stayed there with his performance in the uh, the Spider-Man franchise. So he, he was in the Lady Killers? So yeah, I guess so. All right. Julio, did you see this movie when it was first released? Uh, Yes, I did. But speaking of Juno, I get the feeling that I watched it before it became Whiplash. Uh, Mm. Definitely watched it before he won the Oscar, before uh, Simmons won the Oscar. And and I want to say that I watched it just when it was just a movie, before there was any serious buzz behind it. And I liked it. Uh, as as a release, but I remember that that was just the Juno effect, right? It it when all the accolades came later, it was just uh, I was already I was done with it. <laughs> I had moved on. Yeah, I was rooting for uh, Ethan Hawke in Boyhood. <laughs> uh, yeah, I watched it when it first came out too, or around that time. Um, so this time around, Julio, uh, how did you watch it? How, do you own this movie? How did you come to see it? I don't. I. I thought I was going to have to rent it, but it turns out that it's available on IMDb Pro, which I guess I have as a as an attachment to my Amazon Prime account. So I watched it for free with a handful of commercial interruptions, which um, they were not placed uh, ideally. I, I imagine that the people behind IMDb Pro, it's not like they're watching the movie and thinking, okay, this is a good stopping point. Sometimes you'd be like in the middle of Paul Reiser saying something profound. <laughs> you just get a commercial. But but that's fine. I didn't have to pay for it. So so I took it. And I already seen it. You know, if it was a movie that I hadn't seen before, I would have forked three, four dollars and just gotten a uh, an actual rental. But but you know, for a movie that I already seen, 
NDB Pro did the job. It was the, the transfer looked good. the The sound quality was good. I mean, a, as much sound quality as you need for the music that they're trying to play in this movie, it was all right. No, no regrets. How about you? Do you own it? Oh no, I actually watched it the exact same way you did. I watched it uh, through Amazon Prime on uh, IMDb Pro, sponsored by Amazon or whatever it was. God, if we had known, I wonder if we could have compared notes about the the commercial breaks. <laughs> well, my main thing with the commercial breaks was they were on a different audio casting than the uh, movie. And so like the commercials were way louder than the movie itself. So I'd have like the volume turned up to listen to the movie and then the commercial for Mucinex or whatever the fuck, some cat litter came on and was like, <laughs> bah, bah, bah. So yeah, but same thing. Transfer was fine. I, I thought I owned it. And then I went to my shelf and I was like, hmm, may have to fill this gap. So Whiplash is not in the collection, so yeah, fortunately I hopped on and was able to view it for free, but as Julio had stated, I'd seen this a few times before. I had forgotten how fast this movie flies by. Uh, I can't make up my mind whether that's a good thing or not. Um, but it is the movie, uh, the story of Andrew Neiman, played by Miles Teller, who we've discussed on this podcast before, but I don't think he's been featured in a movie we've covered is that correct i think so and i'm guessing you're referring to uh spectacular now because i can't think of any yes. and i guess we've made fun of fan four stick a few times but this is going to be our first shared miles teller experience he's something what do you think about miles teller um did you ever read that that interview that was floating around uh, a couple years ago where uh he called Joaquin Phoenix Hawk <laughs> numerous times in no. the interview. He, you know, he went viral kind like of. Like as a joke? No, he was being, well, I don't know. You know, that was the thing with the interview. I, It went viral because it kind of painted him as a douche. Kind of like a pretentious, like the kind of guy that's that's calling Joaquin Phoenix Hawk as a serious thing. Uh, but when I read it, to me, it said a lot more about the interviewer because the interviewer seemed to come to it or it, it kind of read like a hit piece. Like I don't like Miles Teller. So I'm going to write, I'm going to interview him and I'm going to make him sound like a complete idiot. Uh, uh-huh. So I don't know. I mean, you have to read it and, and make up your mind, but, but that was my main, it, it was probably right after uh, uh, whiplash because, you know, everybody was talking about him then. That's really the only other bit of insight I have into Miles Teller. I've seen him in a couple of movies. Like I said, Fan Forsick. There's that movie with uh, uh, Jonah Hill. I think it's a Todd Phillips movie, actually. Uh, an Oscar grab that went nowhere. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, they're like, War Pigs. Yeah. They're like or War Dogs, leaders. excuse yeah, me. War yeah. Pigs is the Black Sabbath song. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they play it in the movie. Yeah, yeah that movie is... Whatever. Um, There's no way Todd Phillips leaves something that obvious on the table. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, I don't know. I my main my strongest memory of him is his performance on Whiplash. Therefore, I think of him as kind of an asshole. Uh, you you have a different take on him, I guess. Maybe because I don't know what his uh, spectacular now character is like. No, oh, spectacular now is great. It's rough. Uh, for someone like me to watch, but it's a great movie. Is he more uh, likable f- there than he is here? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sutter Keeley is not a likable character, um, which that's what makes that movie kind of confusing. There's really not a character aside from Cheyenne Woodley that you're rooting for. But my first experience... Oh, that sounds exposure, like Whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> my first exposure to Miles Teller was... Did you ever see Project X? Do you remember that movie? 
No, no. But uh, you don't remember it? I haven't seen it. No, I know exactly. Oh, okay. Is that Todd Phillips as well, or is it just a Todd Phillips wannabe? It's produced by Todd Phillips, and it, like Todd Phillips's name was all over it because he produced it. Okay, and, uh, it's not good. <laughs> it it filled a generation of kids with the the wrong idea of what a good party is. Um, <laughs> But it's a movie that had a budget of like $10 million and made over $100 million. Anyway, tying this back into what we're discussing here, uh, I don't think any of the actors in that movie really went anywhere to speak of. Um, Except for? Miles Teller. Yeah. Who is, he plays himself in the movie. Like, uh Looking at his filmography now, he was in two movies before that, and it looks like he had a couple of shots on TV beforehand. But I remember watching Project X. That's so when I was working at the theater. And so, like, you know, it's like a found footage type movie. Like, it's not like an actual movie. It's like these fucking jerk-offs filming their last day of high school or whatever the fucking plot is. Uh, I, knew, I knew it was found footage. I didn't know what the conceit behind it was. <laughs> Miles Teller this... plays Miles Teller in Project X, like actor Miles Teller. Uh, uh, hold on, I'm getting to it. Okay, and uh, <laughs> slow down, buddy. Uh, so, like, they're at the store buying beer, or smokes, or some shit, and they're like, "Holy shit, uh, that's Miles Teller!" <laughs> and they go up, and he's not playing an actor, but he's apparently playing some like high school legend that's gone to college since. Um, fucking. Jerry O'Connell in Can't Hardly Wait. That's like Miles Teller's character in Project X. They're like, oh my God, you know, you're a legend, da 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 da. And they invite him to the party and he ends up showing up and doing a bunch of ecstasy. And he's like, this, everyone's like, oh my God, it's Miles Teller. So, like, right away, I remember getting online and be like, am I supposed to know this fucker? And being like, <laughs> The egotism of man here. This kid thinks that, like he's some hot shot, or some, I guess they pegged him as like the golden goose, and he was here to lay all the golden eggs. And so, like pretty much everything he did after that, I always revert back to like the first movie I saw him in. He was some celebrated cameo, having no filmography to speak of beforehand. And so, coming into Whiplash, that egotism kind of bleeds through. And, and not just necessarily from Miles Teller, the person, but definitely the character uh, that he plays in this, uh, Neiman. Right away, I forgot that like our two main characters are introduced immediately in this movie. And something else I never caught was, uh, I don't know if you caught, the drum, like the sequence he's playing at the very beginning of this is the last he plays in the movie. Uh, well, I mean, I'll take your word for it because to me, it just, it just sounded like noise. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of musical sequences in this movie where I just, I don't understand what the goal is. Does it really require talent to bang on the drums? <laughs> you know, it's like, I understand. I, I, I guess my bigger point is with respect to all drummers listening to us right now, but it sounds, at least if you watch Whiplash, it really looks like drums on their own don't do anything. You know, it's like, even when you build a whole movie around them, if you take away all the other musical instruments, 
it's just some dude banging on a drum really fast or or you know what i mean like the movie opens with miles teller making noise and the movie closes with miles teller making noise <laughs> the only time that there's some relief is whenever the trumpets or the piano comes in um i don't know maybe like on our on our greener grass episode i'm just revealing myself as a traditionalist when it comes to music <laughs> but <laughs> drums on their own just don't do it for me so i was just i was waiting for the dialogue to come in you know when this first sequence started how do you, how can you even tell that it's the same thing that he plays at the end is that is, is it his like spartacus piece <laughs> it's not like the opening it's not like uh that thing you do it's um no it's He's practicing the same thing that he nails at the end of the movie. I just never caught it before because I've watched the closing sequence of this movie, you know, bleeding into real talk. I've watched it a dozen times. Sometimes I'll just get a hair to go on YouTube and watch it. I mean, I but, can tell you, I mean, I've seen this movie all the way through twice. And uh, the one thing that has stuck with me is the beginning of Whiplash. Like the... Dan, da, 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 da. So, <laughs> that I can do. Maybe I'm just more of a trumpet man than I'm a drums person, but uh, that to me at least sounds like a melody. Some dude just, you know, hitting different uh, surfaces with sticks. Just, I don't know. Not my tempo. <laughs> Not my fucking tempo. Uh, so immediately introduced to the villain of this movie, the Darth Vader here to fucking Neiman's Luke Skywalker, Terrence Fletcher described as a ruthless jazz instructor played of course by jk simmons who somehow finagled an oscar out of this shit uh beat out robert duvall ethan hawk ed norton and mark ruffalo uh to win an oscar for his performance of just yelling very offensive <laughs> and derogatory sexual and racial slurs in this movie that's how the academy works i was about to say a white guy yelling racial slurs that's basically a guaranteed Oscar right there. Yeah, I think that's how they balance the, you know, best picture will go to to the prestige period piece, but best supporting actor, they'll give to the bad boy. Yeah, exactly. They'll give to the the white man doing some sort of cultural appropriation or just playing a white man in a very <laughs> extreme context. And here you have fucking J.K. Simmons trying to dress like Danny Zuko. He's got his white fucking or not a white shirt. It's his black skin tight shirt tucked into black jeans, wearing a black leather jacket, thinking he's the, the main cheese here. J.K. Simmons seems like a cool cat. So I'm just going to more or less put this on the shoulders of a. Uh, old Damien Giselle here for writing the Terrence Fletcher character as a man who's way past his prime, but still thinks he's, he's hot shit. But the mind fucking of this movie begins right away. So this one's going to be a little bit different. I was talking to Julio before we started recording. My notes are fairly minimal because this movie isn't heavy on what we call plot. Uh, the, the plot of this movie is basically Neiman miles tellers, this young drummer at uh, the Schaefer conservatory in New York city. And he wants to be the next buddy rich next, uh, you know, one of the great drummers, the next Tommy Lee, the next animal, you know, take your pick, whoever you want. And there are other ways to become the the next Tommy Lee. There there truly are. Be a white guy with a big dick and marry a, a smoking hot woman. That's that's a way. Women. So Neiman wants to be this all time jazz musician. His uh teacher, he's like in the the regular band, and then there's the what do they call it? The pro group. What are the difference in rankings here? Uh, I don't know. They have the fancy name. Uh, fuck. What is it? It's studio. Studio band. That's studio it. Band. There you go. But they're not a studio. So 
that's just the name. It's just the name. Yeah, it's like like if you if you heard about Universal Studios, but then you had to do the caveat of like, well, it's not a real studio. That's just its name. So it's a theme park. So he wants to be a jazz musician, the best drummer ever. And then you have Fletcher, who's this instructor who's never had a student. He feels, you know, he wants to have, uh, who does he attribute or uh, name drop? Uh, Charlie Parker. He wants to have the next Charlie Parker. That's basically the story. Things fall in, in terms of, you know, secondary characters and swerves here and there. But the basic story is this kid wants to be good. This instructor wants a good student, but he goes through these very intense, you know, uh, John DuPont, Marv Marinovich type techniques to try to mold these people. And it creates this chaos. And, you know, Miles Teller cries and he bleeds a lot. And J.K. Simmons (laughs) uses the F word and demeans him and slaps him and uh, uses his life story to kind of throw it back in his face because he feels that his extreme uh, styles and coaching uh, techniques are where it's at. So that all being said, that's essentially the plot. You can imagine the ups and downs we go through. It's not a movie like Howard the Duck where there's meticulous <laughs> note taking to ensure that we cover. We leave no stone unturned in discussing the plot of this movie. So I think if that it seems like the the only thing that I would add, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, is that both characters are pretty much despicable. <laughs> in case that the the whole story about Miles Teller, uh, the whole prequel that you gave us. Then, then underline that point, and then what we've said about about J.K. Simmons's character. I mean, they're both dicks. They it in ninety five percent of the movie is focused on them. Every now and then you get a brief breather with other characters, but it's just two extremely unpleasant people interacting back and forth. That's that's what the movie is, and you can hear Damien Chazelle thinking that to me. The big pitfall is in this movie is that Damien Chazelle got confused and he thought that being an asshole was being cool. You know, <laughs> when 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 J.K. Simmons is just being a major dick, it's shot and it's staged as in like you're supposed to come out of those scenes thinking, man, but isn't that cool? Isn't it cool how he just he dominates the room? And then when uh when Neiman does something, when Neiman's a dick, you're also supposed to think like, oh man, isn't it cool that this kid's asserting himself and just telling people what's what? The answer is no. No, it's not cool. <laughs> I want to watch a movie about this. Basically, old Damien watched Before Midnight and then didn't know there were two movies before it. And he was like, this is brilliant. No likable characters. And we don't really have much of a reason as to why they hate each other. Let's go into it. So we set the table by explaining this about the movie just to say if it seems like we're kind of jumping around here and there, typically what we like to do with movies is break them down beat by beat by the plot. You know, no pun intended here with a movie about fucking drumming, but it's uh, we may be kind of jumping around because, again, this movie is a bit light on plot. I don't think there's a it's not a coincidence. Fucking Damien didn't win best screenplay for this movie. (laughs) It's heavy on, on musical numbers, though. It it is, it, I I just imagine like the last ten pages of the script were like it's the f- ten pages before the the end of the script it started with, uh, Neiman begins drum solo, next page <laughs> continues drum solo, next page continues drum solo, They're probably like little uh, sketches, stick figures <laughs> of uh, J.K. Simmons just raising his hand, <laughs> close up of the eyes. <laughs> 
Yeah, he like fucking sketched out his own storyboards in them, but they're like very haphazardly done. They look like a child did them. It, it, he's got like a sun in the background with a smiley face on it. <laughs> so yeah, Damien Chazelle had fucking Paul Reiser in this and did barely anything with him. You know, we're talking about we have our two main characters that aren't very likable, but uh, Paul Reiser plays Neiman, Jim Neiman, uh, Miles Teller's dad in this. And God, it is just. Anytime I see old Paul Reiser, just a breath of fresh air, especially in this movie, like he reoccurringly pops up. But just in general, it, it was nice to see Paul. Wouldn't you agree? It was nice to see him. It was not nice to experience the way he was treated. This movie treats him like shit. Uh, he's he's established as just kind of a. Uh, we've talked about this before. Paul Reiser comes at you two separate, two different ways. He can be the villain, or he, where he's just kind of a, a shady guy like in Aliens, or he can be an adorable guy, like Mad About You. And here he's playing adorable. He's just, he's a good dad. He's, he puts up with Andrew's attitude. He's encouraging. He cares for his son. And he, the movie just gives him nothing. Uh, you, you can tell that uh, Miles Teller is embarrassed. <laughs> you know, that, that Paul Reiser is not, I guess, a superstar. All the way to the very end. The, the, the movie doesn't give Paul Reiser a win. Because you would think, okay, they're putting Paul Reiser through all this only so that Miles Teller at the end can come to him and be like, you were right, Dad. I'm sorry. The movie ends with a hug. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's the last shot, the, the last Paul Reiser shot in the movie is <laughs> this close-up as he looks through the... It's not even like his full face. You just see it through a closed door. And he's looking in horror at, at where the movie's headed. You don't see him again after that. He has like the face of, you know, remembering that he left the stove on, but he's in, you know, <laughs> Costa Rica. <laughs> he's like, oh my God, this is terrible. And in the background, Shut the fuck up, son. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I got to call our neighbor, Ralph, to tell him to go fucking turn the stove off. So after a chance encounter with uh, Fletcher, Neiman uh, is hailed to the studio group. And he shows up there basically as a, a secondary for uh, Tanner is the, the character's name. He's there to kind of turn his pages and whatnot. And My favorite uh, character JK's in the movie, Carl Tanner. Tanner? Yeah. Why is that? Oh, I've seen this movie three times, Alex. I just remembered. <laughs> first time, first time, I didn't even notice Tanner. He was just... Second time, I watched it with my friend Drew, which I've mentioned before. We were we were drunk. and We'd both seen it before. So it was one of those where we were just like half paying attention to the movie, half doing like a running commentary. And we just became fixated on Tanner's green shirt. And Tanner's just how he owns the background <laughs> you know because there's a lot of he doesn't really get a lot of lines but he gets to react to a lot of things in the background whenever andrew's playing and uh he has this this posture i don't know if you notice but he has this thing where he doesn't really cross his arms it's more like he sticks his hands under his armpits you know what you know what i'm talking about <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I didn't see him do that, though. Oh, dude, he does it through an entire sequence, where, uh, which is when uh, uh, Fletcher, J.K. Simmons, is humiliating Miles Teller for the very first time. And so Miles Teller is at the, at, at the, with the main drums, and, and Tanner is in the background. 
and he's he has the that that position he's he has his hands stuck uh, under his armpits and he's just kind of like nodding and looking and he looks like such a dick he's overacting so much but uh, i guess i have a a fond memory of it because I, like i said i've been drinking so to me it was the funniest thing ever and then when i was watching it last night i, I just started laughing because it, it just all came flooding back to me it was like that's tanner that's fair i mean <clears throat> we all have connections to movies like that and that's that i mean i'm glad you're able to get some joy here from uh nate lang <laughs> when a movie uh, gives you so little <laughs> you just hold on to whatever you can get I imagine his original acting name, Nate Lang, here was Nathan Lang, and there was too much confusion between him and Nathan Lane, and so his agent's like, listen, we gotta change this, because they originally called Nathan Lane for uh, <laughs> to audition for the role of Tanner. <laughs> Where's the fucking book, Neiman? I need to know where it is. He looks at Giselle. He's like, uh, "Am I supposed to? Do you really? The script says that I'm supposed to stick my hands up my armpits. Is that is that right? <laughs> you want me to play the drums? I don't think so." <laughs> so when he's initially picked for studio band, doesn't uh, Fletcher tell him something like, "Be there at six a.m." He gives him some ridiculous instruction. Yeah, I mean, honestly, six a.m. doesn't sound insane. Uh, it it only becomes insane when you realize that nobody else showed up at 6 a.m. Everybody else was scheduled at 9. I have not woken up before like 8 a.m. in several years, so 6 a.m. sounds insane to me. I, <laughs> I don't know if my body would allow that to happen. Every morning, I wake up at 5 a.m. Uh, to feed the cats. So, so yeah, to me, 6 a.m. was fine. <laughs> so, yeah, Nori wakes me up sometimes to get her morning biscuit before like sometimes like 530, but that's really me just sleepwalking, un- unscrewing a jar lid, dropping it on the floor, and then just like walking back to bed. Yeah, there, there's no way. At 6 in the morning, I'll give you that. At 6 in the morning, I'm not playing. I'm just sitting there. I'm not even turning pages. You beat me to it. I was about to say, I'm I'm a long ways away from being motivated to do anything substantial at 6 a.m. I can wake up then if you need me to, but I'm not going to be playing drums or turning pages. But that's the whole point. He gets there and, ooh, he mind-fucked him once again. And he really wasn't, you know, the practice didn't begin until 9 a.m. So it starts... um, you would think this scene would be in the first reel, but like <laughs> this movie like flies by uh, because he says, "All right, gang, whiplash." He walks in, and you would think that's when like the title hits the screen, <laughs> and like Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons. They would do the the Goodwill Hunting thing where their their names, the credits come up as they're playing their instruments. Yes, exactly. Nate Lang and Nate Lang as Tanner. Uh, and we quickly learn more so just how evil and insane uh, Fletcher is. He he realizes that someone's out of tune and he begins chastising the different uh, sections of the band. He goes to the the winds and the uh, who does he end? the reeds and then he goes to the is it the trombones where he ends up finding somebody or whatever the case yeah, is because he says uh the bones the bones now yeah. and i giggled yeah and one <laughs> one of them thinks he's out of tune so he gets in his face and starts yelling at him and the guy starts crying and he yells you know he says fuck really loudly and the kid <laughs> runs off ashamed of himself and he's like he wasn't really out of tune you were but he didn't know and that's just as bad so homeboy's a psycho but but you know, Damon Chazelle, see, that's that's one of those moments where you can feel that Damon Chazelle is in awe of this guy. It's like, wasn't that cool, guys? 
<laughs> yeah, he like looks around. I imagine like at a table read, every time one of those lines drop, he would look around for like, you know, <laughs> visual affirmation of himself. Like someone just to give him like the proud nod. And he would just do a boner <laughs> check. He's like, eh? yeah. how many people liked it? Let's take five. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, painting an insight. There's a difference between, you know, wanting and even demanding perfection and then being an emotional terrorist like uh, Fletcher is here. And Neiman gets put on. And this is uh, what leads to, you know, not my tempo. He asks him, I think it's the double time, double time swing. He's wanting him to play here. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not yet. This is uh, still uh, oh, it's Caravan whiplash. that they're playing. Oh, is that Caravan or, or Whiplash? whiplash where, where he gets... I thought he called him on for Caravan. That's like they play. They start with Whiplash, and then he calls, calls him on for, let's give Neiman a try. And he says it's not his tempo. And then, you know, just, again, belittles him and humiliates him. And I have in quotations here, he tells him, you know, if you're trying to ruin my band, I will fuck you like a pig. That That is just so vile. What Like, I don't even know if that's an insult it, more than a threat, but it is just a reprehensible line of dialogue. <laughs> it just says way too much about the, the J.K. Simmons character. <laughs> but, okay, so this is where the movie detaches itself from reality though because uh even when he kind of fucks with the with the kid that was that wasn't out of tune but thought he was out of tune uh up till then you're like man this guy's a dick and it's a shame that that he can get away with this but the moment the way that he treats miles teller in this sequence where he throws a fucking chair at him right at some point yeah (laughs) slaps him he throws a chair at him and he slaps him in this scene yeah right it's just in what world if I see this in a movie, the next scene is uh, J.K. Simmons getting fired. <laughs> or at the very least, like an investigation being open. Not one person took out their cell phone and started, you know, Instagramming what was going on. Instagram was around then. They could have taken their phone out and, you know, taken a video and, you know, check this out. LOL. White boy <laughs> being owned. So the, you know, the ebb and flow of his music is intertwined with Nicole who is played by Melissa Benoist? 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 She's Supergirl. That's that's if you if you kept up with uh, superhero casting news, you would know that she's Supergirl. Benoist, Benoist, Supergirl, whatever. She's pretty. She's too good for uh, Miles Teller in this movie. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> that is a fact. One thing first I want to get out of the way. Her introduction is early in the movie because she's at the movies with uh, Paul Reiser. And she works at the movie theater. And she works behind the concession stand. And she commits the criminal, the cardinal sin of scooping popcorn out of the popper with the tub. She doesn't scoop it into the tub. She uses the tub to scoop the popcorn, which is incredibly unsanitary. (laughs) You're not supposed to do that. breaking protocol Our, breaking operation already getting on my bad side so when i saw that she was going on a date with him i was like ah, serves her right yeah they go out they have an awkward first date about where they go to school and all this and i mean she's there but she doesn't really play too much of a character that's like consequential because his obsession with music begins here after this you know first encounter with fletcher like in you know, in his nature, in his element here of conducting, he realizes that he, I guess he has to prove something to him. So his obsession really starts becoming the focus here, despite the fact that he has a, you know, a good 
really good girl in front of him. Yeah, he's too blind to see that. But but the way the movie's constructed, it, it it again it feels like Damien Chazelle kind of telling you, well, how cool is this guy that he's willing to sacrifice a girl that seems to like him, that that seems smart. Uh, I mean, up to the point of dating him, I guess. But um, she's pretty. She's you know, and yet he has the the fortitude of character to turn away that temptation to dedicate himself fully to the pursuit of his dreams. The the movie when you're watching it is repellent because of the way that he tells her that, the way that he basically tells her that she's gonna be dragging him down. But uh, the way that the movie is constructed it just makes it feel like no but Damien Chazelle was you think that he's cool he's doing something cool he's isn't it cool that he's so determined he's definitely he has a, uh, enough character to not just put up with Fletcher but to also eventually outsmart him defeat him so to speak yeah it's clearly just uh I guess some regrets from uh Damien Chazelle that he never tackled the career of music and he's just trying to vent it through the character here of uh andrew neiman who begins you know his ascension here through the the um the studio band as we kind of jested about earlier at a competition he uh, misplaces tanner's sheet music after a stern warning from fletcher you know if you lose this you're fucking done i'm you're you're out of here so he uh, Tanner goes and tries to you know throw Neiman under the bus. He's like Neiman lost my music, and uh, Fletcher rightly tells him the the music was your responsibility. And uh, this is where we learn that he can't play uh, due to you know he needs visual cues. It's a learning disorder that he has. Of course, you know Fletcher is very understanding of this. Just kidding. He <laughs> takes a point to mock it. His uh, learning his learning disorder. <laughs> Yeah, and basically just belittle him as he does with every other male character in this movie. He does uh, demean a, a female character at one point uh, early in the movie where he asks oh, yeah. her to play like uh, a note. And it's like, well, let's see if your first chair just because you're cute. And she plays it goes, yep, that's it. Anyway, here, this is where uh, Neiman ends up making the, the core drummer of the group because he's able to go on stage and play uh, the, the notes from memory. And knocks Tanner out of the equation. Here's the reason why I guess uh Tanner endear himself to me because <laughs> he has nothing to do if there's no if there aren't any pages. You know, there's no pages for him to to flip. I never thought about that. For for Neiman. So, there's no reason for him to be out there sitting with the rest of the band, but yet Fletcher made him go out and sit himself there and just I don't know, cross his arms in that weird way again while the rest of the band is playing. It was, uh, I don't know, it, it's just crazy. I wonder if they were like, well, we're paying this guy for the day, so might as well just have him there, <laughs> pull up a chair for, for Tanner. Basically dunced him for the world to see. He's like, we're at this competition, we're just going to put you in the, the dunce chair. Turn around and stare at the wall, but everyone's <laughs> going to see you. Back when they thought that uh, they did gotten Nathan Lane to play the part. They're like, well, let's let's throw Nathan Lane in there. We're not going to waste him. We already got him. To reinstill the spirit of punk rock, even though this movie is about jazz, and the, the spirit of punk rock and the, the, the musicians striving for a greater good, we get a family dinner scene with, uh, I would assume this was Andrew's cousins and his uncle and aunt uh, back at the home of his father, Jim. Uh, you know, his cousins are football players and I guess – striving in in a more traditional acceptable sense 
of middle American families. And, you know, he really has none of it. And it just leads to a big family squabble. I mean, the I think his uncle asked him, you have any friends? Because it, it really is, it paints him as such an unlikable prick. It's one of those things of like, he's pretty much right in his argument that what he's achieved so far is a more elite level of performance than, you know, his division three football player cousins. But he's such a fucking asshole in his argument that it's like, no, you're wrong. Yeah, it's it's such a wasted opportunity because this was the one time where you could have gotten us back on Andrew's side. I mean, he really lost us because he's a dick, because of the way he treated uh, Supergirl. But but here, I could see where he was coming from. I could feel his pain. He's he's the guy on that table, that dinner table. He's the guy that has a podcast. Nobody else understands what the hell his his deal is. They can't wrap themselves around drumming. It's 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 not a tangible uh, path to success, I guess. When they ask him about his drumming, it's just out of courtesy, not because they actually know how to process the information he gives them. But then, yeah, he lashes out and he embarrasses Paul Reiser, which is where I just decided he was not worth my time. Poor Paul Reiser is just trying to eat his chicken in peace. And yet uh, he finds himself having to make excuses for his son. Yeah, it's all just very egotistical and that's I, I think it leads into him breaking up with Nicole and you know we've already kind of explained that he he thinks he's so self-righteous uh, well he is so self-righteous he doesn't think he is he's so self-righteous and he thinks he's going to be something great that he can't afford to have a girlfriend at the time and has this unbelievably egotistical diatribe about why he needs to break up with this girl and it's uh it's painful to watch and you really feel for uh Nicole, Melissa Benoist, and but then you realize, no, she's smart and much better than him. She'll bounce back from this, but this motherfucker is going to want her back someday. And I mean, that's what turns out to happen. The problem is that the movie kind of proves them right, but by, by what happens at the end, which is really irritating. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he basically tells her that the only way that he can be good enough is if he doesn't have any attachments. And then, ultimately, the movie leads you to believe that he became good enough. Therefore, it, the movie retroactively justifies his decisions up till then. You know, it's okay that he was such an asshole to his father. It's okay that he uh, let this abusive teacher abuse him. And it's okay that he broke up with uh, with a girl that seemed really good for him because in the end he achieved what he wanted and uh that's that doesn't sit well with me <laughs> I, I I think that the movie morally had the responsibility to actually show that oh well Andrew made all these sacrifices and either they weren't necessary or he still achieved some, uh, you know, he might have achieved whatever he wanted to achieve, but it didn't give him happiness. And instead, the by the time we get to the end of the movie, uh, none of those things happen. So that that's a bummer. Could you tell this movie was written from the perspective of a man, is my question. <laughs> Not just a man, but a man that maybe needs to justify his, his previous failures. Just like, oh, well, I, I would have done better, but I had a girlfriend at the time. A man who definitely wished his drumming career would have gone more places than it did. <laughs> this, I mean, this next sequence is fucking like a quarter of the movie where 
Uh, we come into class uh, for the studio group. J.K. Simmons comes in and you know and, and tell, explains to the class that a former student of his named Sean Casey had died in a car wreck, and that he was a really good musician. And you know they listen to him for a little bit, and then they start playing uh, double time swing. And this is where he like freaks out and starts alternating uh, the drummers to see who can nail it. It's at this point he brings in um, Connolly, mm-hmm. the uh, another drummer that we were introduced to very briefly in the movie from like the, the whatever you want to call it, the juvie or the elementary uh, musical act. The the first stage of whatever the, the band is at Schaefer. And he's brought in and it's just basically this revolving door of the three of these guys because uh, this is like the, you know, faster, faster. And he wants them to play double time swing correctly. And this ends up being like a five hour session. They don't actually be, they're not able to begin practice till two in the in the morning because he's putting these guys through the fucking ringer. But it doesn't make uh, any sense. I mean, Alex, am I just stone deaf? What they're doing in this whole sequence is just hitting the drums as quickly as possible, but there's no rhythm, there's nothing to it. That's, am I wrong? <laughs> to me, it was just J.K. Simmons yelling at them to go faster, but there was no. There was no magic. There was no music coming out of it. Wasn't his tempo, man. <laughs> what the fuck is his tempo? Just... Could have used uh, Richie Ramone here, <laughs> the, the fastest drummer the Ramones ever had. With speed. But it could have really I mean, brought up the pace for him. Speed doesn't really equal quality, I think. And also, I mean, I'll, I'll level with you. I, I, was, I became increasingly distracted during the drumming sequences once it got into my head that the close-ups of Andrew Newman... Uh, Andrew Newman drumming could be read as Andrew Newman jerking off. Once you get that in your head, it's just, <laughs> fuck, dude. Just, you know, the more frenetic, the more sweaty, the more bloody he gets, it's just it's just funny. You can't take it seriously anymore. I'm Yeah, I was going to say, I, I hope you're not accustomed to people bleeding when they jerk off, but I don't know. Things might be different in Peru. Much like, like with drumming, I think if your hands start bleeding, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this scene is definitely highlighted by a lot of offensive J.K. Simmons dialogue again. Uh, <laughs> racial epithets and uh, cultural derogatory slurs and yeah, some pretty offensive uh, slurs uh, for homosexuals used in this. It's all pretty intense. He made me laugh once, which is when uh, at one point, probably in like hour three of this torture, uh, Connolly adjusts uh, the height on the seat. Oh, the seat. That's it, huh? <laughs> That's why you've been playing wrong. I can't remember his exact verbiage, but he says something like, well, you better be fucking right now. <laughs> and, of course, it all leads to Neiman finally getting on the rhythm that he wants, and they're able to begin practice at 2 a.m. This is what leads into their next competition. Neiman's taking the bus there. My note just says, absolute disaster. <laughs> He's taking the bus, uh, the bus dies down, he catches another bus, and then he gets to a bus station, he was expecting a cab to be there, there's no cabs, he goes and rents a car, he leaves his drumsticks at the rental place, he makes it to the performance just on time, just in time to get in a, you know, a, a married couple squabble with J.K. Simmons, realizes he doesn't have his sticks, goes back to the rental place, gets them, and then is like speeding to get back, and then gets fucking T-boned by a truck. It's... It's all so much, and it's filmed so chaotically. I mean, uh, this is like 
a scene that could give someone uh, motion sickness, like we, you know, back in the day when 3D movies first started, like as a full time thing, and have to clean puke out of theaters and shit. I could see, you know, some seniors watching this and just it just being too much. And you know, when he gets hit by the car, just Bleh! have you uh, have you ever been t boned, Alex? No, I am very fortunate in that. You know, knock on wood too. I haven't really been in a bad car wreck. I think I've yeah I've just been rear-ended or rear-ended somebody, but I've never been T-boned. Have you? Yeah, once. Uh, I mean, I understand not all T-bones are the same, <laughs> but of course my my first instinct when I see Neiman like get T-boned is that's bullshit. That's not that's not how it goes, and not so much. <laughs> Not so much in the sense that his bone his... was even hanging out like Anton Chigar at the end of No Country for Old Men. <laughs> right. But it, I mean, I guess it comes more from the fact that I got T-boned, right? And it was my car didn't flip like his. I was not bleeding after it. You know, it was just I got hit and the car spun. And then I was just like on the side of the of the sidewalk or the, of the street. And I kind of like gathered myself and. Once I realized I was okay, my next thought was like, man, I really hope that the person that hit me is okay. I got out of my car and because I get T-boned, you know, on the passenger side, not, you know, on the on the driver's side. So I was able to just open <laughs> my car and walked out and I was kind of wobbly. And I saw the, the lady that, that had hit me, like come out of her car and we're like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then all I could do was get in my car and drive home. Like, you know, it was, my car was like, totaled but i could still make it home and um and that was the last time that my car was driven (laughs) that that car but anyway when i see fucking miles tiller crawl out of the wreckage bleeding and then it's not even that you know he thinks that he can drum it's just that he even makes it to the (laughs) to the show after this he said no no after my t-bone was a lot less dramatic and there was no way i could have done anything you know, it was like, like I said, I I barely managed to drive myself home and and then just spend the rest of the day soothing myself. <laughs> this fucker. But no, he's gonna go and you know shred it up on the drums. He's Buddy Rich, motherfucker. And then he jumps on Fletcher. <laughs> it's like, where's this energy coming from? Yeah, yeah. I thought you know, like the throwing up thing. Like it looked like he was about to puke and he couldn't even keep his shit together. And then I guess he got one last shot of adrenaline when. Uh, Fletcher was like, get the fuck off my stage. Because then he runs and fucking spears him. Apparently, he shoot broke uh, two of, uh, or cracked two of J.K. Simmons' ribs with that spear that he hit him with. Oh, and man. Uh, it was in the last two days of shooting. So Simmons, according to IMDb, managed to continue work despite the injury. Yeah, that the really hard work of uh, waving his hands in front of the band. <laughs> I was about to say, I hope that like the only like the last day, you know, there's two days left in shooting or whatever that happened, and then like the last scene they had to record was him hitting Miles Teller in the face, and you know he like <laughs> he put a roll of quarters in his hand before he hit him. <laughs> Come on, motherfucker! <laughs> so this obviously this is it. Teller, uh, Neiman, he blows it. I mean, I mean, understandably so. You can't. His bus broke down and they got hit by a car. He still showed a warrior spirit, but it just, it, it was bravery and stupidity a lot of times border each other very closely. And that's it for him. Instead of 
going to the hospital and handling it like a man, he instead tackles this middle-aged man and tries to fight him <laughs> for, for many to see. And he's done. He's kicked out of Schaefer. And that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, the end of his drumming career. I do have the note here, fucking born camera. That's a note I had. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, that's uh, more real talk. Well, it's really weird, too, because honestly, the first time I watched this movie, I thought that this entire thing was uh, was a, like a dream sequence. I don't remember when my T-bone happened, so I don't know if that was influencing my my thoughts. But to me, I thought that after he got hit, we were just, you know, he was passed oh, out. He was in a coma somewhere, and everything else was uh, just his imagination. And then slowly, at some point, I realized that oh no, this is this is still happening. The movie just went completely outlandish, because uh, there's this weird sort of montage that shows him talking to uh, I don't know, is it a social worker or just a private investigator, somebody that Paul Reiser has hired, <laughs> somebody that's questioning him about uh, Fletcher. Yeah, that all comes into the next scene. Um... But I never thought of that. That's a good call out with because the camera the camera is like noticeably like bobbing and weaving when it's showing Fletcher. Like it's like a born camera that's tired, and uh, <laughs> I guess that could be a, we're supposed to be seeing a first person view of what Neiman sees. But no, yeah, and then like the because the audio dips too, and what you're referring to is the next sequence where a lawyer representing the parents of Sean Casey. Uh, reveals that he actually hung himself and he had dealt with depression and anxiety that was spurred on after he had dealt with uh, Fletcher as a teacher. And basically she explains, you know, we just want to make sure he can't do this to anyone ever again. And like an abusive relationship, Neiman here is like, no, he didn't do anything. He was fine. <laughs> and Paul Reiser being the voice reason, like, what the fuck is wrong with you, kid? <laughs> Like, why are you protecting him? And, but it all does lead to eventually uh, Neiman acquiesces and says, yeah, I'll testify as an anonymous source about. You know, but he doesn't the, even he doesn't even do it in that honorable way. He's just more like, fine, just tell me what I need to say. He's acting like, OK, well, reluctantly, I will do you a favor and and get this guy fired. The perils of being young. And this is where Neiman tries to kind of restart his life as a young man. And his dad ends up helping him find a, an apartment in the city. It's actually a pretty good looking apartment. It's one I wouldn't mind having if I ever had to go back to that type of living. But with all the gushers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like one of my notes that Paul Reiser just saying, I stocked the, the pantry full of gushers. I know you love them, which who, who the fuck doesn't such a good dad. So in the city, a chance meeting brings Fletcher and Neiman back together again. What are Neiman the fucking C odds? Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, it's uh, he's at a he walks by a club that says that Terrence Fletcher's performing later in the evening, so he sees him. Fletcher ends up seeing Neiman. He talks to him. He explains, you know, I've been let go of my position, and he has this big monologue uh, about how he just he demanded more because he wanted to have a you know a peer that or a, a student. A pupil is the word I was looking for there that was capable of more. And he has this big monologue that kind of concludes or climaxes, I should say, with him saying the two most dangerous words in the English language are good job, which is a very interesting stance to have. 
Yeah, it's uh, this is where the movie gets really dangerous up. And I think it's just because it's a calibration thing. I think that Damien Chazelle, old kidding aside about how cool he may think that Fletcher is, and I think he, he does think he's cool, <laughs> but... I think worse than that is just that he doesn't realize the power of the words that he's putting on Simonson's mouth and the, when coupled with his performance and just the the fact that, for better or for worse, uh, J.K. Simmons is a charismatic guy and, and Chazelle gives him two scenes in the movie where he gets to sell you Fletcher as a human. One is when he tells the, the students about Sean Casey and you know he seems really shaken by the fact that that Sean Casey has died he gets I'm pretty sure he cries he, he lets like maybe a single tear drop um and watching that you're like wow this guy it's actually it really is just an act that he's putting on for the students but really underneath he's he's human and then you get this other scene where he he is given the the chance to rationalizes his behavior and and sound reasonable right in this scene the acting of simmons coupled with the dialogue coupled with the the reaction the scripted reaction from miles teller to everything he's saying it's again it's all designed to tell you like hey this guy kind of has a point yeah and so what ends up happening is this movie is like the ultimate paradox because i think that it ends up one encouraging toxic behavior like Fletcher's, right? Because it's telling you that this guy, he may be abrasive, he may be he may be a little too much, but in the end, he has good intentions. And worst of all, by the end of the movie, it's like, oh, he gets results. Uh, but then at the same time, it also kind of excuses mediocrity because it's giving people an excuse to give up as well. Because... Anybody that pushes them even a little bit, now they have somebody like Fletcher to point at and say, oh, you're just like that asshole in Whiplash. <laughs> so I'm not even going to try. You're just you're just abusing me and it's not warranted. So so it's a, in the end, the movie ends up cutting both ways and both ways are bad because of just the way that they wrote that character. Uh, I think that everybody would have been better off if Fletcher was actually written a little more like a villain, which is what he is. Yeah, and here it just exactly what you said is correct, Julio. He's he should be written more like a villain, like fucking Kingpin or something, uh, but or Thanos just have really intense over like domineering dialogue. But instead, he speaks kind of like this longing lover or you know a long lost um, you know friend with a deep connection, which I guess is the story they're trying to tell, but it's really not there. Uh, it should be, you know, the dialogue that's written in specifically in this scene is way more akin to before sunset or something like that. And especially with the way they, they part where he gives them like the, you know, I've got a band together. I need a drummer. The one I have isn't working. He's not like you. I miss and you. And then, you know, <laughs> miles Teller looks off into the, the distance with the cars going by and it's like, well, I'll think about it. I don't know. And we all know what you're going to do. It's he walks movie. away, yeah, he walks away, but halfway through, he looks back. Yeah, exactly. And fucking Kiss Me by Six Sense and the Richer starts <laughs> playing, or Six Spence and the Richer, whatever the fuck. 
So even though he plays coy with Fletcher, he's obviously over the moon that he has this gig lined up. And this asshole has the gumption to call Nicole and be like, hey, you want to come hang out? And God knows how much time has passed by this point, but he thinks she's just going to be like, yep, I'll be right there. And I knew you'd instead, come to your senses. Exactly. And fortunately, he gets like a moment of come up it's here because she kind of owns him and is like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to ask my boyfriend. And then he he has this moment of like, what? She didn't wait for me? What is this? <laughs> so, yeah, the well bears no water for Miles Teller here, uh, but he's still he's very happy and very energetic and enthusiastic about this opportunity that he has. Somehow, uh, a, somehow he cons Paul Reiser into going, though, which I, I was kind of irritated that the movie didn't give us that scene because Paul Reiser has been very much against Fletcher. Right. He like you said, he he encouraged Andrew to talk to the lawyer to get this guy fired because he, yeah, you know, this guy had been abusing his son. And yet somehow, I mean, Paul Reiser is, is it's cool with this happening. I understand that Andrew is, I guess, sort of an adult and he can do whatever he wants. But why is Paul Reiser in the audience? Supporting his son, man. They only have each other. So they got to see it through. He's, he's too good for him. But Paul Reiser's in attendance. It is the JVC Jazz Festival. It's a big opportunity. It's a a big annual event, and you know, impressing the right person there can really springboard your star power, your name, your career, any you know, extreme analogy or phrase you want to use, any cliche. It can carry you there. As they get up on stage, Andrew's very excited to be there, very eager, and you know, he. I guess he thinks this is his second chance, a second lease on life so to speak and uh he's got this shitty grin on his face like he's about to conquer the world when fletcher walks up on stage and asks him you think i'm fucking stupid i know it was you and he reveals that he he knows it was uh neiman that got him fired so he's basically here to ensure that he crushes any hopes admirations and dreams that Neiman ever has any ideas he has about ever being a, a full-time jazz musician as he announces a song they're going to play is Upswingin', which is also, you know, immediately Neiman has like PTSD regarding this. So it's a, an actual living nightmare. Right. It's a, but this is where, where Fletcher becomes a supervillain, right? Up till now, yes. I, I just don't understand. Why would you waste our time trying to humanize him when he's going to become fucking Lex Luthor? in the final scene of the movie. He, no shit. It doesn't make any sense because, I mean, everybody there knows that Fletcher is in charge. He's a, you know, it reflects on him. <laughs> he spent the entire movie talking about how the band's performance reflects on him. And now he's in front of these people who are super important. He's, he's told everybody that these people decide if you succeed or not, and they never forget so his plan is to uh, to make Andrew to put Andrew in a position where he's gonna play terribly, and and that ends his future in music. Okay, but that also makes Fletcher himself look bad in front of these people. So is he self-immolating just for the sake of getting revenge on Andrew? He doesn't even have a backup plan because when you know Andrew takes off, there's not a, a second drummer that's gonna <laughs> replace him. He's just like throwing the rest of this band into the bus. It's just like a kamikaze mission. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, I'm gonna get you. 
he does all he can to ensure that he just yeah he just tanks this and everyone else on stage is like well what do we do now <laughs> and he's like completely hate boning him with his conducting like the way he's looking at him while he's conducting the rest of the band he's like yeah you see this it's like basically like he's having sex with his girlfriend right in front of him he's just like what are you gonna do about it nothing <laughs> and so andrew collects his shit and he walks off stage an utter defeated man and uh, the only constant in this movie of support for him, Paul Reiser's there waiting for him, and they have a, a good embrace. And I guess this is the moment, though, where Neiman realizes, you know, no, I'm not letting this fucker win, which whatever that means, because he needs him to succeed. But goes back to his drum kit. He's and like, just, real men don't hug their parents. <laughs> you can hug it out, bitch. <laughs> and he goes back and he just kicks into Caravan really aggressively. And he ends up cueing the band himself, which is crazy. And you can see just the look of defeat on Fletcher's eyes where he Everybody has plays to go along. back. To, yeah. And he goes back to basically miming the cues and, you know, trying to get everyone back in. Um, and then Andrew just won't stop. He just goes on this insane drum solo that is like this huge dramatic conclusion to the movie. And eventually to the point where I guess him and Fletcher get back on the same page, even after, you know, this extreme <laughs> mental anguish and torment. They're together once again, and it ends them building to a massive crescendo, and they cue the band finale together. It's absolutely preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's just the 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 close-ups. I mean, this, this movie is just built on close-ups, really. And uh, here, it just Chazelle goes out of control. There's this shot, and I was very happy to see that it's actually a GIF on Twitter of just uh, J.K. Simmons's eyes. <laughs> As he's coming, yes. as they're approaching yes. the climax of this performance, it's just insane. The way that he that he conducts Andrew, again, I know it's my fault for just getting into my head that it's that it looks like they're jerking off, but it's just you know because he slows him down, slows down the drumming until it's almost completely non-existent, and then he rises back up, you know, picks up the tempo, and it just. I don't know. It just looks silly. It looks I couldn't take it seriously, <laughs> but and it looks even sillier because they are taking it so seriously. Uh, I just couldn't. I couldn't connect. I was. I was like. I was more like Paul Reiser. I was just watching in horror, going like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie's over. I, I guess we learned something. It, I mean, they didn't even get. They didn't even play Whiplash at the end. What the fuck? I, I honestly thought that it was going to be a medley. I thought that Andrew was going to go from, from Caravan to Whiplash to whatever it is that they close with. But it didn't happen. He went rogue. It did not. It just kind of came and went, and it was over. And that was Whiplash. And J.K. Simmons said, Whiplash! <laughs> now Tanner did. <laughs> he was still sitting behind everybody. <laughs> He jumped up at the end of the song and just threw his arms out to the side. Whiplash! <laughs> uh, the post-credit scene is Paul Reiser walking out of the of the auditorium and he runs into uh, Melissa Benoit and her boyfriend. They're like, "Are we late? Do you already play?" <laughs> and then he just looks at the camera and gives it like a shrug and a Jim Halpert look. <laughs> uh. Anyway, that was Whiplash. That was Whiplash. 94%. Go figure. An awards darling that won three Academy Awards. I will give you until Real Talk, Julio, to figure out what those three awards were. Well, I really hope that it was uh, 
best earworm because it's been stuck in my head. All right. Well, let's go to real talk. Hey, sorry, Mike. Well, glad you could fit us into your busy schedule, darling. I know. Look, I'm sorry I'm late, but uh, I'm here. I'm ready to go. Connelly's playing the part. Yeah, like fucking hell he's playing my part. What the fuck did you just say to me? It's my part. It's my part, and I decide who to lend it to. Usually it's somebody that has fucking sticks. I left him in the car. I'll be right back. Take me five minutes. I'm warming up the band now. Look, I can use Ryan's sticks. It's Neiman, you lost the fucking part. No, I did it. Look, you can't fucking do this to Can't? Me. Yeah. When did you become a fucking expert on what I can or cannot do, you fucking weepy willow shit sack? I earned that part. You never earned anything. It God, you are a self-righteous prick. The only reason you're a fucking core is because you misplaced a folder. The only reason you're in studio band to begin with is because I told you exactly what I'd be asking for in Nassau. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, I'm in studio band because I'm the hey, best player. Hey, why don't you just back off, Yeah, fuck off, John Utah. Turn my pages, bitch. Hey, I can cut you any fucking time I want. You would have cut me by now. Try me, you fucking weasel. All right, I am recording for Real Talk. But before Real Talk, let's talk about what patrons can expect when this episode is released. Or shortly after it's released. Alex, what are you plugging on the Patreon uh, exclusive segment this time i i always feel like plugging like the whole idea of it, it i know we like used to do it just say hey, whatever's going on but now with patreon i feel like it should be something like new and something that i just recently <laughs> did and, and that's not really how things work with me so i am going to be discussing the uh jackass film franchise briefly and just it's something uh-huh. that me and my sister have been revisiting recently and just kind of realization of why those are like comfort movies for me and how i understand that sounds kind of disturbing off the the get-go but i'll be discussing those movies and uh because you know there's a new one coming out so i've been revisiting those and kind of sparked a lot of old emotions for me and whatnot so be talking about jackass and julio will probably just be like yeah i don't really care about this so did i watched uh jackass 3d i screened it I was excited too. Still one of the better 3D movies because it was actually shot with three dimensional cameras. Yeah, I I've forgotten that there's a new one coming out. Man, somebody's gonna die. <laughs> to, I didn't realize Steve was almost shit. 50. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you might have to deal with a lot of CGI on this latest installment. <laughs> on my end, I uh, will be talking about two things. I think my my mission. Uh, with these segments now, I think is going to be to champion at least one thing that is not uh, a sequel or part of a franchise or, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I feel like a there's, yeah, during our, there are constant discussions throughout the run of this show. I'm always uh, telling you about how like, well, there's like all this cool stuff out there that's not like a Marvel movie <laughs> that is not a superhero movie or that is not a sequel or a remake or whatever. Uh, but I don't think that I actually bring them up enough, like with concrete examples. There's this really, really good movie that I finally watched. It came out earlier this year. It was, it just, it opened on streaming. You know, it was like right around the time the shutdown started happening all over uh, America. The movie's called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's an independent movie. Uh, it's directed by Eliza Hitman. And it was, it's really good. It's on uh, HBO Max now. That's how I finally got around to watching it. But I'm, I'm going to be talking about it. It's basically about a, a girl that uh, 
a teenage girl gets pregnant. She basically goes on a trip to New York to get an abortion. Doesn't that sound just riveting, Alex? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a lark, it, a family yeah. romp. It's kind of a you know the, a dark version of Juno. It's but it's man, it's so good. I, I can't wait to tell you about it and hopefully convince you to give it a shot. Uh, and then because I can't help myself, I'm also going to talk a little bit about Cobra Kai. Uh, which I started watching. I blew through the first season on Netflix, and I'm ready for the second one. I, I don't know what your relationship is with the with the Karate Kid, Alex. So minimal. I don't know how minimal, but you've seen it. Yes, the first one, yeah. Right, in the original, not the not the Will Smith remake. Well, not Will Smith, like his son, Jaden. I think it's Jaden. That is correct. Yeah, I remember that. That one did like pretty good box office, but no, I've never seen it. Just the original, original. Okay, good. Well, well, I'll refresh your memory. Maybe convince you to to give this one a shot, even though it kind of represents things that you hate because it's it's just basically nostalgia. <laughs> but it's good, and it's uh, and it's thirty minute episodes, so it's even better. And also, you know, if you're a patron, then by now you've already seen uh, the patron exclusive episode that we did about uh, Blue is the warmest color which should have dropped either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And then also a special Christmas surprise, a little blast from the past that we pulled from the archives. So uh, enjoy that. And then, of course, as usual, if you're a patron, you also get uh, get a peek at a bunch of uh, audio clips that didn't make it into the episode. So a lot of fun. If that sounds appealing, you want to join the patron family, patreon.com slash Prime. That's where you find us. Also, Alex, we have a new patron, and it's a name that's uh, not just familiar to us, but familiar to anybody that listens to the show. Chaz Fisher has joined the, the ranks of our patrons, uh, and I was just thinking it's been a while. It's been almost a year since we had Chaz on the show. We had him for our uh, Terminator two-parter spectacular. <laughs> that wasn't even a year ago. Good Lord. <laughs> that was January, so we're almost there. My God. <laughs> Welcome, Chaz. Very happy hey, to buddy. have you, to have you as a patron, and uh, I'm sure we'll we'll hear from you soon. And now let's go to real talk. Julio, I don't know if you did actually looked it up. So that would be cheating. But off the top of your head, do you know what the three Academy Awards that Whiplash won were? I didn't look it up. In fact, I forgot about it. <laughs> I went to grab a cider. I and I kind of exchange words with my wife and then it was just out of my mind um well i, I mean i know simmons got best supporting actor yes, uh, sir. i am assuming it might have gotten no well never mind because they're covering it's not original so it's not best original score maybe cinematography i'm gonna go with best cinematography uh best supporting actor and best sound design maybe you're pretty close on those other two. It was best supporting actor, best film editing, and best sound mixing. So you, you were definitely on the right. Oh, path. I I picked the wrong sound category. Damn it! You know, hats off to sound engineers and all that stuff. But I, I guess my frustration when referring to that category is that I can never keep them straight. Like you know, you get the Oscar yeah. for best sound mixing and the Oscar to best sound editing. I was like, which is which? And I know there was one time where the Oscars actually gave you like a little a peek at which one is which. And I was like, wow, can we do this every time? Because there's no way I'm going to remember. And of course, they didn't ever again. But uh, that makes sense. And the editing, that also makes sense. Yeah. Oh, well. One out of three. I've done worse. 
It was a valiant effort. I mean, like you said, you were on the right path. So it was also nominated for Best Adaptive Screenplay and Best Picture, losing out that year to Julio's favorite, Birdman. And for Best Much Adaptive, better drumming in Birdman. And Best Adapted Screenplay, losing out to The Imitation Game, which I have not seen. Have you seen the short film that this is based on, the Whiplash short film? Uh, no. As I was uh, pulling quotes earlier i realized that i should actually give it a shot like and try to find it just the way that i found the greener grass short film (laughs) that's the beauty of the internet nothing ever dies nothing stays hidden have you seen it no i I was just reading about it now it's jk simmons is in it and then johnny simmons uh plays neiman and johnny simmons no relation uh, to jk simmons (laughs) no not to my knowledge uh he was young neil in scott pilgrim that's the only thing i really recognize him from trying to see if he's been anything else I know who he is. I mean, that's yeah. that's all you had to say, really. Young Neil. Uh, yeah, that that's gonna suck. That, that he to get the the big one. Yeah, it's like you get like Simmons gets to make the jump into feature film, but but you don't. What does that say? <laughs> I guess the the best possible spin is like, hey, it's not you. It's just that the studio wants Miles Teller because you already established that he's an asshole. <laughs> Because he was he was so good that he was able to play himself in his third movie that he made. I guess before we get into why this was requested, let's go ahead and see what the six uh, percent. There was those six percent of critics, ninety four percent of Rotten Tomatoes. That means there were still a few people, a few naysayers, as it were. Julio, what were they saying? Yeah, I grabbed I grabbed five quotes this time, which is a little more than what I usually do, but they were uh, they were pretty amusing. So. Five rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Debbie Baldwin from Ladue News, who says, The advertising boasts words like riveting and astounding. Sadly, I was neither riveted nor astounded. What a Debbie Downer. That's the only reason why I pulled that quote. Next, Candace Frederick from Real Talk Online says, The film has potential, but ultimately there's more bark than bite. Do you agree with that, Alex? More bark than bite? Do you think it's a lot of yelling, but not enough car crashes? (laughs) <laughs> not not enough slapping. I think there's a lot of bark, but yeah, I think there, this movie has plenty of bite, like a bark's root beer. <laughs> so there's there's just as much bark as in B-A-R-Q. <laughs> yes, exactly. Jules Brenner from Cinema Signals says, A more distasteful rendering of character and story I can't begin to imagine. I must be missing something. I'll say, Jules, you're not alone. We'll get into it, but I, I mean, that is... One of the the big the divide when it comes to the appreciation of this film is it, pretty well marked. I think it's very notorious. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but in my experience, there's two things that I that I'm familiar with, and it's like the strong opinions from people that love this movie and people that hate this movie, and also the strong opinions on how people read the ending of this movie, which I think kind of it could feed into how you uh, whether you like it or not too. So I, I look forward to discussing that with you. Then uh, John Bifus from Commercial Appeal, Memphis, Tennessee, says, The movie struck me as unreal and vaguely ridiculous. I found it easy to imagine Will Ferrell in the role of Fletcher, a switch that would require no decrease in tantrums and no change in dialogue. And my God, Will Ferrell playing Fletcher would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this guy, I don't think he accomplished what he thought he was going to with that statement. <laughs> I just, I mean, I don't know that you could have, I mean, you could still have Miles Teller there, but maybe the Will Ferrell version is the one where uh, Johnny Simmons fits better. 
You yes, can see Will Ferrell slapping young Neil, and you're like, I, I can roll with this. And then finally, David Thompson from The New Republic says, this is a student film in rampant overdrive, and it will attract attention and offers. So I just hope Mr. Chazelle doesn't believe too much in his film's dumb message. And therein lies the question, what is Whiplash's message? And is it dumb? Uh, I, I don't know. I was going to... And I forgot. I didn't get around to it. Uh, I was going to try to find a Schwarzenegger quote because he had things to say. I don't know if that if you came across that on your research, just his his reaction to Whiplash. But that was always something that kind of I don't know amused me. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? No. What are you talking about? Well, I can't find it on my phone. <laughs> the internet has failed me. Unfortunately, uh, now I guess the algorithm decided that I'm looking for uh, articles about Terminator Dark Fate because Schwarzenegger and J.K. Simmons are in it. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll bring it up in a minute, but if if you want to go through, I guess, whatever you have as an opening salvo. Well, I was going to throw it back to you to see, uh, I guess, Katie and OT, did they give us... Have they given any, you know, grounds to why they don't like this movie, what they don't like about it, or we just know that they don't They've like it? They've made it clear, at least Katie made it clear, that they just find the characters uh, just unbearable. I mean, I, I can totally see that as in like, oh, well, you dislike these people so much that you can't stand a movie centered around them. <laughs> so when I think of the reaction to Whiplash, I always think of the ending as something that people read one way or the other. And uh, I don't know that you can make the argument that it's open to interpretation. I'm very curious to see how you feel about this. Because to me, I, I feel like it's very clear. But maybe maybe it isn't. Maybe it's maybe it is open and I'm just being kind of pig headed with my reading of the movie. So Whiplash premiered at Sundance on January sixteenth of twenty fourteen. And it went into a wider release in October of that year, October tenth of twenty fourteen. As we mentioned, nominated for Best Picture one Best Supporting Actor, J.K. Simmons. Uh, nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. And then one for Best Film Editing and Best Sound Mixing. $3.3 million with a box office return of $49 million, Making it one of the lowest grossing films to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Which is interesting. It was shot in 19 days. Which given what appeared to be the emotional and physical toll that some of these scenes would have taken on their actors. It's pretty impressive. A visual double was used. Oh, so like that's, I, not really, uh, that's not really J.K. Simmons conducting? That was really that was not really his penis. Uh, <laughs> no, because I remember when the movie came out reading about because I know Miles Teller did a lot of the drumming. And th- what it says here is, although a visual double was used, all of Andrew's drumming was performed by Miles Teller himself to pre-recorded tracks. About 40% of Teller's drumming was used in the soundtrack. Okay, that doesn't really make much sense. That's like a Sex Panther statistic right there. 60% of it was used all of the time. The body double was just for the slapping. That's not his <laughs> real face. I mean, some of that shit was like true Buddy Rich shit. And so I, I remember reading at the time that like he did a lot of the drumming, but some of those close-ups of like the hands and shit, that I think that's not him. I couldn't find a more detailed breakdown of that exactly. But uh, whatever the case, man, props to him. Because I know he did a lot of that. And I said he started playing drums when he was in his teens. And as someone who's fucked around with drum kits before, there is uh, a skill set that goes along with that that I do not possess, that I am very um, envious of, and I have an appreciation for people that do have that. So good on him. Written and directed, as we mentioned, by Damien Giselle, uh, based somewhat on his early life experiences and his jazz band. 
man, this movie flew by. It's an hour and 40 minutes. I remember I watched it with my sister today and I was kind of taking notes and wrapping Christmas gifts while we were watching it. And then like, I saw them setting up for the finish. Uh, I watch way too much pro wrestling. That's the way I just verbalized that. I saw I saw where the movie was, and I turned to my sister. I was like, "Holy fuck, is this the ending already?" She's like, "Yeah," because you know they're about to go into the caravan, and uh, that's a compliment that you can give a movie man when you're just kind of lost in it and it just completely flies by. Yeah, I, I I'm a big fan of this movie. I don't. I guess I haven't really heard arguments against it, so I don't really know what to base my appreciation and admiration for it off of i don't know like where my lily pads that i'm supposed to springboard off of are set where the goalposts are but i (laughs) i really enjoy this i like miles teller a lot as i mentioned with uh, speaking about spectacular now he has a certain quality that's very relatable to him and that could be like a white guy thing i honestly don't know jk simmons is a phenomenal actor that's definitely a white guy thing jk simmons or miles teller (laughs) J.K. Simmons. Jonah Jameson. I mean, we've we've talked about him a lot. He's come up several times on here before, and he's, I think, if I remember correctly, it's been years, but I think the unanimous verdict between you, myself, and Reed with Juno was that he was, like, the best part of it besides scary Jason Bateman. Yeah, he's just phenomenal. And although, like, obviously, you're supposed to find his character kind of reprehensible to a certain extent, he's fucking hilarious in this. His delivery and, uh, like, that scene where he sees that little girl in the hallway and I guess it's a friend of his and he's like, Oh, last mm-hmm. time I saw you, you were this small. And we, when you grow up, will you play in my band? She's like, sure. And then he walks in, he's like, listen up fuckers. And then, like yells at him and uses a bunch of, you know, as we've mentioned throughout slurs and epithets that are not appropriate for us to repeat, but there's a lot of comedy in his delivery. It's a very simple movie. I'm curious. What is, what what are these readings about the ending that people seem to be hung up on or have That's quarrels? fascinating that, that that you really don't know. But I guess I mean I I do think I spend more time online than you do. <laughs> I think we spend an equal amount of time online. We just spend them different places. That's so true. I guess let me say, yeah, I think he's just a, a kid that has this insatiable desire to please this, please this guy, his teacher. Fletcher and Fletcher is this old man who like never achieved what he wanted and never got what he wanted. And he finally got it out of this kid. My take is that Neiman after the end of the movie went on to bigger and better things. And that for Fletcher, that was like his crowning achievement. So uh, I don't know. Is does the internet proffer <laughs> something that they were like lovers that I'm missing out on? Well, no, what what really the big theory is that Paul Reiser is not really his father, that Fletcher is his father. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. <laughs> People make up stupid shit and like believe stupid shit. So like I was believing you there for a second. You could have get you could have kept me going. <laughs> I was going to say that's how he knew so much about his past. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, I'll preface this. By saying that I agree with with what you've said so far, I mean I think that that's I think that that's what the story is. I think that where it gets divisive is when you get to the end and people can't agree on what the movie is saying. So let's start there. Do you see the ending as confirmation or uh, I guess affirmation of Fletcher's methods? When the, when you get to the end, is the movie telling you, well, it was worth it? 
right? Like, is the movie, is the final sequence, the final shots, are they proving Fletcher right? Be- you know, I'm basically saying, okay, well, we watched the back and forth and the different, we listened to the different arguments, but in the end, it was worth it because look, Andrew, fuck, he never would have done this if it wasn't for Fletcher, right? So Fletcher was right. Or is the movie saying, isn't it a shame that Andrew's so lost in his desire to to please this asshole and so and to you know be the best that he doesn't realize how he's being dehumanized by him and that even when he when he achieves like you know when he accomplishes this amazing performance in the end he's still a kid looking for approval from this asshole and and turning his back on somebody who actually cares about him you know, like Paul Reiser. It's kind of like one way or the other. <laughs> but when the movie is over, are you watching like a triumph or are you watching a tragedy? How do you read it? Well, my sister and I were having this discussion about the movie. I might have a little bit of a, a harder edge to that stuff. I mean, I'm a sensitive guy and, I've, you know, not to say I've ever experienced something like uh, Fletcher, but I've definitely been subject of tough love from time to time. And I'm someone that thinks to a certain extent bullying works. So I, I'm i more in line to think that sometimes hard edges can make things and people prevail. It's also, uh, that's also a byproduct of me being a fan of professional fighting for pretty much my whole life and seeing how different coaching methods work for different people. The idea of this Fletcher school of thought and the way you, that that's not how you conduct business with every single person. And I think that is more in line with where I would be like, this movie's unrealistic because he treats every single person exactly the same. And that's not, that's not conducive. That's how in this movie you get examples like Sean Casey. That's that's not going to work for everybody. There's a famous MMA coach named Greg Jackson, who has trained just an absolute who's who of professional MMA fighters and something I've always noticed about him is in his corner in between fights, he approaches every single fighter differently. Sometimes we'll be like, hey, great work. Take a breath. This is what we need to do. Just relax. And then kind of gives them a little bit of technical instruction. Then I've seen him fall and like slapping people in the face and being like, this is fucking war and like yelling at him and like trying to give him like a, a, a battle cry, a rallying cry. So I think that I think that people that write off that the style that Fletcher approaches with Neiman is, has no fruit to it. Cause that is incorrect. Uh, like I said, to me, the unrealistic part of the movie is that's how he approaches everybody. Cause that that's not going to work. I think that's kind of what the story tries to tell. They kind of try to like show that he approaches everyone. Like they're a lump of coal that he's trying to just force feed a diamond out of or force a diamond out of, I should say. Just like squeeze it until it just cracks and a beautiful 16-carat diamond comes out of it. Which, that's not setting realistic expectations for yourself. But at the same time, I can already see what I'm saying right now would offend some people or some people would (laughs) find the idea of it to be incorrect. But uh, I don't think so. I think there's examples of where it works and what it doesn't. Marv Marinovich, who I named in the first half, and I think I even name-dropped him recently on another podcast. I don't know if anyone that listens to our podcast knows who Marv Marinovich is or who his son is and the story there. It he, took me a moment to uh, to figure out who you were talking about in the first half. The first <laughs> name, DuPont, is the one that did it. I was like, how do I know that? And then it, it clicked. 
<laughs> he tried this shit with his son and it didn't work. And his son just turned out and wasn't, you know, he's had drug problems and problems with the law and whatnot. That, that doesn't work for everybody, but it does for others. Marv Marinovich also trained BJ Penn for a few camps when BJ was the most successful he was in his entire career when he had someone who actually could discipline him and put these strenuous restrictions on him for how to train and what you can do. And, you know, BJ was a ball of natural talent that always struggled with dedication and that, that worked for him. I'm making all these analogies to things that aren't music, obviously, but that's also blue is the warmest color is another example of something we talked about recently on Patreon. Um, but just to kind of quickly recap the circumstances and the uh, treatment, that the two leads in that movie were given, Leah Sadow and Adele Oxford-Chopoulos, were probably not things that people would say were right. Uh, but both of them have since said that, you know, the hardened nature of their leader, in that case the director, you know, I guess the Fletcher for them in this situation, brought something out of them and got performances out of them that probably wouldn't have otherwise, and that they're grateful for that since that happened. This isn't how everything should be. But things like this have a place. And this is kind of like a thing of, I have kind of a hard time sometimes <laughs> understanding how people don't see that. You're not going to get the best out of people by giving them participation trophies. Not everyone, at least. Yeah, so you telling me that is kind of like, I, I, I have a hard time understanding how some people don't see that you'll get. If someone wants to really dedicate their life to something and wants to throw their whole being into something, and say, this is what I want to do, make me do it. I think the better argument would be he was 19 in this movie, and that's a bit young to decide something like that. But if you really want to dedicate yourself to something and you think this person is going to lead you down the primrose path and take you to the promised land, I mean, sometimes there's some extreme measures that need to be taken. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it, Julio, but obviously this is a fictional movie, but in this particular situation, (laughs) I... Yeah, I thought it was, like anybody, it was ridiculous that he was willing to almost die to prove himself to this guy, but he had a goal, and he wanted to obtain it, and he thought this guy could lead him to it. And in the end, the way I read the end of the movie was, you know, I'm using my hands right now to make an example, so everyone listening to our podcast can see. You know, Fletcher stayed here, and then Neiman ended up surpassing him, but it was because of that help for him to get him there. Well, I'll start by saying that if if I'm remembering correctly, I might have gotten the wrong celebrity, but I'm pretty sure it was Schwarzenegger. Uh, Schwarzenegger agrees with you. He 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 thought the movie was ultimately a celebration of what you can achieve when you set your mind to it. Again, I I couldn't find the exact quote online, and it could be that I'm misconstruing <laughs> what he said but for, i remember the gist of it was like hey this is how arnold reads the movie which i found do you know, fascinating do you know who the highest paid actor in the world is right now not jk simmons <laughs> clooney no i'm just trying to make the argument it's the rock it's dwayne johnson oh you know how many times that guy was cut down and told no and bullied and berated and said, you know, you can't do this. You can't achieve this. Pretty sure he used that as motivation. I'm just saying, like, uh, what if that was Schwarzenegger that said that, I can see where he's coming from as well. Because, you, you know, you got to, if you're dedicated to something, you take that and you feed off of it. I'm a fucking fat schlub that works a <laughs> nine-to-five job. We're not talking, like, I, I think that's the problem we get into when we talk about these situations in these movies. We're not talking about a conventional person living here. 
if my boss treated me like that, fuck you, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. But it's also, I'm not, I'm like I said, I work a nine to five and I have a job that I pretty much have to pay bills and kind of eventually a career path, but it's not, I don't have dreams of being something greater. I'm not daring to be great right now. Uh, if I were, that's, that's why you're tested. You enter yeah, into but that. I, I think that, you know, the devil's in the details and you actually already alluded to it, you know, like Andrew's 19. Well, well, first, uh, so my reading, I read it the opposite way. Uh, and not because I disagree with most of the things that you've said. I actually agree with them. But to me, you know, to me, always the question is like, but what is the movie saying? Like, you know, and what are we looking at at the end? And to me, the especially the close-up of Paul Reiser towards the end is telling you where the movie lies. You know, wh- what I've are created watching? a monster. Uh, yeah, or, 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 well, not even like him, like, you know, but it's like they've created, they turned my boy into a monster. <laughs> I don't recognize this guy that's playing the drums. Uh, <laughs> Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that if the, if you change Paul Reiser's close up to one of pride, surprise pride, but pride nonetheless, I think that it gets a little murkier how to read the movie. But I think that that shot of him kind of tells you, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, obviously, once the movie's out there, it's no longer up to the filmmaker to to tell you how you feel about it. You experience yeah. it the way you experience it, you know. Yeah. So to me, but to me, that is kind of like a, a, a signifier, you know, that that shot to me is it's it's a tragedy. You know, there's there's no argument about the level of uh, what an accomplishment uh Andrew has uh, pulled off at the end and I think that also there's no argument that that Fletcher's methods are in this specific situation are you know effective but also uh, you know there's no argument that they're effective the question is I guess whether they're worth it in the world of the movie whether they're worth it in this specific scenario and I think that maybe the movie's greatest achievement right next to getting J.K. Simmons an Oscar is that it opens up that conversation. Because again, like I said, the first time I watched it, to me, it was pretty clear. I was like, oh man, that sucks. You know, like that kid's never going to get from under this guy's boot. You know, it's like, he's still, his biggest triumph is pleasing him. (laughs) It says, fuck you. But don't you think that in the end, though, because it's, I mean, obviously this is like a ridiculous alternative but you know it's not like he he drummed and then left you know <laughs> he didn't drop the mic or drop the sticks so to speak instead well, there's he no drummed. time for that i mean the, the movie, movie could cuts. have made time <laughs> oh oh i see you know but instead he lets fletcher come in and they they commune they have the, they have a moment they go from being antagonistic during his solo to becoming collaborators yeah but he like takes over his band and like he cues them all, and the way like the way I've always interpreted it is like he he takes over and he shows him that he's more than he thought he was, or he's made him into this, and that he's he's now beyond. He's uh fuck. What's the line that Russell Hammond uses? I think he says like musically, I've outgrown them all, or something <laughs> like that. And that's what I was thinking of in here. And then, like, yeah, and he just kind of gives him his moment because obviously it means so much to J.K. Simmons. But like I said, obviously there's no way to prove this because there's not Whiplasher or Whiplash 2 or whatever <laughs> out there. So 
My idea would be that like fucking Neiman got picked up by someone from the JVC Jazz Festival or, you know, someone was there and someone was like, all right, you got to come here. And then fucking Fletcher went back to his can of pork and beans at his apartment. I think that the problem is uh, a problem, not really a problem, but one of what makes the situation stickier is what you mentioned, that he's 19. He's still, at least the way that we see it, he's still a kid in, in my mind. And maybe I'm not supposed to see him as a kid right but to me it still looks like an adult taking yes. advantage of a kid yes. so so that makes it harder to to buy it as it doesn't it doesn't ever look like a balanced fair situation you know this is not like you were saying somebody that has decided that they want to sacrifice everything to be the best instead it looks like well yeah somebody that's kind of come to that to that conclusion, but they're too young to really understand what that means, or you know, and and then they have this really strong toxic figure just kind of telling him, "Well, yeah. this is how you do it, and this is the only way to do it." And he ends up, you know, alienating everybody else in his life. Obviously, like you said, there's no whiplash too, so we don't know what happened <laughs> after. Maybe he went out and he had a beer with his dad, and his dad's like, "Man, I didn't know you had it in you. That's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> he never saw Fletcher again. He was like, "Yeah, I proved myself, and I can just, you know, move on with my musical career without worrying about this asshole." But uh, the entire mood of the movie, the way that the story is played out, what we've seen of Andrew's character, what we've seen of Fletcher's character, and what has been established, I guess, by Chazelle as like the rules that this world works under. When when we get to the end, I feel, I mean, it's exhilarating, but I also feel like he like like this kid just lost his soul i mean again you know we're all we all bring our own baggage to to a movie when we watch it and uh which you know again you know to me like i i when i watched it the first time i read it this way and then wow it turns out that no some people read it like me some people read it like you you know schwarzenegger like i said reads it like you (laughs) uh some people watch it and they're like oh this is a movie about the dangers of having somebody that Praise on on ambitious young people and you know see that's it's so funny because that that has so much to do with the time period it's made in you know rocky's the same fucking story mick just fucking beats the shit out of him and you know makes him overcommit to these things that he's doing and puts him through the ringer makes him fucking run these hills and beat up these raw beef carcasses and (laughs) you know put himself through absolute hell to not even win just to go to the the decision with Apollo Creed, it's it's yeah, all. Yeah, but you can to- kind of feel like Rocky had well two things. One, he was he was an adult, but and also it's like well, it couldn't get any worse for him, right? Whereas like Andrew is a kid that's full of potential. I mean, there's no way of knowing that could he have gotten to that solo through a different like this. Is the only incentive that's gonna get him to be great is to be treated like garbage by Fletcher. Or could he have gotten there anyway? You know, it's like the story of uh, whatever, the guy that threw a symbol at the other musician, you know, it's like, yes, that's something that happened. But that is that the only way to get there? You know, how do you know that that guy was not going to, you know, end up being uh, a great musician anyway without somebody being hostile toward him? You know, like you said, yeah, I understand that. It's like, well, it works. Some people just need that kind of uh, aggressive uh, <laughs> incentive to to really make it. But... But to make that kind of judgment 
you know, when you're the Fletcher character and you're making that kind of judgment, uh, well, you're not really even making that judgment. You're just deciding that you're going to treat everybody that way. Yeah, that's what makes him a poor coach. He's not he's not a good teacher and he's not a good instructor because he treats everybody that way. Right. Rocky's trainer, I mean, he knew Rocky. And I mean, I'm assuming that he figured this is the only way that it's going to happen. <laughs> he's got to yeah. punch those beef, uh, those laps of those beef. frozen beef carcasses. I, I'm just saying it's an interesting time period for this movie to be made. I think that's what makes Fletcher the bad guy, like I said, because he's just a, 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 a dumb, a bad coach because that coaching style does not work for everybody, that way of learning. But it, to me, it makes it apparent that Neiman is like the one person that finally came into his uh, – universe has grasped his palm that is going to respond well to that type of treatment and it shines through in the end i think there's more to it it's not that that's necessary and you know i i I feel like i already need to go back and speak on something i said earlier about bullying works that i mean that in a very specified to this type of movie sense i don't you're talking about people getting wedgies or (laughs) no this is obviously a sensitive subject, and I don't want people to think that uh, I have some calloused view on things. But it's, I, I, I do think my mind is kind of askew or different from yours in this topic, and that's probably primarily having been around sports and a lot of combat sports my entire life, and seeing how different coaching styles work, and that they yield different results and sometimes better results from some people with more extreme measures. So no, I, I'm not really bothered by the narrative of this movie. I think it shows that the Fletcher character is just a miserable person. And I've already said a thousand times a, a poor instructor and a poor coach uh, because he doesn't understand that every pupil is different and responds differently. But I think that, like I said, the Neiman character, this is what was needed for him to excel. And I think it does show, if it's Schwarzenegger, whoever said that, what this can bring out of people. And someone like him would fucking know uh, the criticisms and whatnot he went through and the level of success. That dude is the personification of the American dream, as it has been known for the past 50 years, 60 years. So... I feel if it was Schwarzenegger that commented on it, he would be uh, valid in doing so. And like I said, Blue's Warmest Colors, another example, it got something out of those actresses that they self-admittedly probably wouldn't got it out of them otherwise. And I could make countless sports references and I could tell you countless sports references and be here all day. I'm not really sure anyone's ever attained greatness just by being told good job. So I kind of understand that monologue that J.K. Simmons has. It's not for everybody, but you know the elite, the best of the best, I don't think got where they were just by constantly being handed participation trophies. Well, but I think that that's the extreme though, right? I mean, you have like participation trophies and you have abusive behaviors as like the two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> the goalposts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and then you have a whole world in between to you know get people to reach their full potential i mean i don't know i do not have any examples i guess my belief would be that you know just in the case of andrew you know i would like to think the movie doesn't show me otherwise that he wouldn't have achieved what he ends up achieving uh 
on its own or with a different you know coaching method or whatever i mean like i said it works the movie what the movie is telling me that is that it did work but it doesn't really show me look i mean first off in case it wasn't clear i like the movie i think the movie's great uh and i wouldn't want the movie to be this way but if the movie had shown me andrew being somebody that was not driven to begin with right it's like this guy that wants to be good but you can tell that he's not good because he's just like you know he doesn't practice enough or whatever and then he meets fletcher and we see the change and we're like wow he treats him like shit but he's actually like a better drummer now then i i I think that they would the movie would be making a clearer point. The movie would be saying like it was necessary for Fletcher to step in. I don't think the movie does that. And that's fine. Actually, like I said, I wouldn't want the movie to do that. I love the the, the fact that we've been having this conversation <laughs> in this conversation has been happening since the movie came out. And it can be argued both ways. Because Giselle, as a filmmaker, decided to just give us a very uh uh it's not hands-off, but you know, he doesn't I, I don't think that he leans as heavily one way or the other. And that's why when you get to the end, you can have the the two very different reads on it. Uh, I think that's good. I think that's that's a good thing in the movie. It doesn't make the movie a bad movie for me. It doesn't make it a bad experience. I Like I said, just because I find the ending tragic doesn't mean that I, I don't enjoy getting there. But I understand that if you are somebody who could read the the ending as a celebration or an endorsement of uh, Fletcher's behavior, you could be turned off by get, you know when you get to that end point. If you're if you've been enduring these characters' behavior, you know Fletcher being an asshole and Andrew being kind of like a dick, also and kind of being self-involved and whatever, and maybe because you're hoping that the the ending is gonna, uh, if not give him a comeuppance, at least kind of change their you know their character arc is going to be realizing that oh well i was i shouldn't have been doing this you know or there was a different way to approach it but instead the ending what it does is kind of reinforce everything that you haven't been enjoying in the movie or everything that you've been kind of disapproving of during the movie i can see how that could turn you off and so as i was flipping through the quotes on run tomatoes and i was seeing people that critics who's at least on the quote, their big complaint was just that the characters were just so uh so despicable i guess you know sort of like unlikable and uh and i was thinking well is it really that you didn't like the characters or it's just that you didn't like them and the movie ended up disagreeing with you (laughs) or you know showing them as as triumphant so i understand even though it's not how i read the movie i understand that that sort of backlash to it the one thing that i don't agree with you know at all is other quotes and i didn't really pull any of those but there were some that were saying that the movie was hollow that the movie didn't have anything to say it was all like flash and no substance and i was like that's not i mean again this conversation just proved that the movie had a lot <laughs> going on yeah uh, it's not that at least i don't believe that damien Giselle accidentally made a movie that could be read you know in such different ways and that opens the discussion to this sort of uh, complex topic. So when I read that criticism, I'm, like, I'm more likely to go, like, I, I really don't get it. I don't, I don't see how you could find this movie superficial. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fascinating. It was the same year as Foxcatcher. Cause that's another movie that kind of speaks to that same idea of pushing someone to the physical limit to, release their best within fortunately in this movie no one was shot and killed i was about to um, say foxcatcher is more clearly 
Again, I only know from like the movie, and I've seen it only once. But I think that one's more clearly. It's a, uh, it's a bit against. more demonizing. Of, there's clearly a bad character. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, with Channing Tatum's character in that, there's certain parts in that. No, you should definitely rewatch that. It's great. Steve Carell's been off-putting, but I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, so there's examples of when this extreme shit works and doesn't work. And I was trying to think of like uh, if you know this discussion of someone came back with an argument. It's like, yeah, it works or it doesn't. But then there's also like uh, came to me the example of End of the Century, the Ramones album that was uh, produced by Phil Spector. That's like the one example of like someone putting people like pushing them to the brink of just emotional distress and like a complete breakdown and then getting the results. And it was just kind of, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that, that, you know, the maybe I'm not saying that is the wrong approach, but maybe the... Because to me, the the question of whether the results are there or not is is different from is it worth it? Like, let's if we just go with the assumption that it's the results are always going to be there, right? Like, let's just in a world where Fletcher's methods always produce greatness, you know, let's just say that you know it's not going to happen. But but okay, well, in in the world where were, oh, I'm sorry. You're just speaking hypothetically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just for the sake of simplifying the argument, right? If Fletcher's methods always achieve greatness in the long run, again, is it worth it? Right? Like the the pain of you know the humiliation, the alienation from people that love you, the potential psychological damage that you go through when when you're doing this, you know? And I guess the answer is, well, that's not a case-by-case scenario because some people can handle it, some people can't, and some people shouldn't try to handle it. And so so I guess to me, like, from my worldview, what it falls back on is, like, not did it make you great, but did it make you happy, right? It's like, did the process end up with you as a satisfied human being or the process end up with you being the best of the best? And I understand that sometimes there's an intersection. You can, you know, being the best of the best makes you a happy human being. But again, I guess it boils down to how you read the ending of the movie because when I look at Andrew at the end of the movie, I don't see somebody that's happy. I just see somebody that got where he wanted to be, but I don't know that that necessarily means that he's happy. But that can be read, you know, multiple ways. So number one, to clarify, I think End of the Century is a great album. I was more <laughs> referring to the the uh, critical and, and financial reception to it. Uh <laughs> I'm sure there are people that don't think it's a great album, and they're like, "I don't. Why the fuck do they put themselves through it?" Okay, but the question is, how do the Ramones feel about it? Uh, Well, unfortunately, uh, well, no, Marky's still alive, but the other three have passed. Uh, They talk. It came to me because they talk about it in the absolutely wonderful documentary called End of the Century about the Ramones, where like it drove Johnny to the point of he just said "fuck this" and he packed up and left. I don't know if they hold it fondly, but I do. It has like Danny says and Do you remember Rock and Roll? I think I want you around's on there, Rock and Roll High School. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, you spoke to it right there. It's life experiences and the things I've seen and like the uh, literal people I've known that went through things similar to Andrew in this movie. And then went on to use that to achieve high levels of success. And I guess that's just it. I've literally seen this shit in practice. So it makes me a bit more accepting, receptive to the idea of this storytelling. And knowing that they're, you know, happy with where they're at and what they're doing. So it's, uh, 
it's a little bit different for everybody. This shit doesn't work for everyone. I guess that and that would mean that this movie's not for everybody. Where that that's fine. It's it's not a movie in the sense like the music's awesome, but the story that's there is obviously very intense. Some of it lost me. The whole sequence with him getting hit by a car and running to the performance and getting on stage bleeding and that that just became too silly. Uh, it really feels whole... like the movie jumps the shark, sort of, and then the, the shark jumps back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was like the movie's like a TV show that they ran that episode and then immediately like redacted what happened in it. They're like, no, never mind. Yeah, because that scene is just it's it's too in a movie so grounded in like real feelings and almost like a sense of reality that it kind of takes it out and it's like oh this is a movie yeah and the funny thing is they didn't need to do that right i mean he just needed to be late all he needs to do is exactly. like be late and then uh fletcher tells him to fuck off and then he jumps on fletcher and gets kicked out of school that's all you, well, you see what ha- what happened was was old damien was like Fuck, the movie's only 90 minutes long. We got to extend it. <laughs> we got to extend it by 10 minutes. Come on, let's figure something out. He misunderstood the Mattis rule. He thought that it meant more than 90 minutes. Less than 90 minutes is not worth it. It was um, an interesting time for this movie to be made. And I think even more so with some of the light that's been shed on certain ideologies and topics since. I think if this was even made today, there would be more discussions like what you were explaining to me are some people's reads on this movie. I think it just boils down to people that disagree with certain ideologies and then are given an example like this, rightfully so, feel they have the platform to say, no, uh, that's not how it should be or I don't like it because of this. So as we discussed, all great art inspires debate, and I think it's interesting. I honestly came into literally this portion of the podcast not knowing any of these things that you told me, so <laughs> I learned a lot <laughs> and enjoyed discussing them. Sidestepping so a little bit to uh, to the man behind this, I think we're in agreement that, uh, at least just given the evidence so far, Damien Chazelle peaked with Whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> that is a confirmed good friend that is a massive 10-4 that was uh, another big takeaway for me watching this movie again having watched la la land and having watched uh first man which you haven't seen i would I like I'm, to it's not a bad movie but it's no whiplash and la la land the other hand it's i think it's a bad movie <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad movie with a really good ending but I, don't, I wouldn't even go that far. That movie fucking sucks, dude. Like, <laughs> I I watched that and I was like, I could not believe because I watched it years after the fact. I probably watched it last year, maybe twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, and I was like, this, this, this is what I've been hearing about. And that movie made five hundred million dollars or whatever it made. And you want to talk about a movie that has nothing to say? I. I <laughs> I have no idea how cause how someone how two people could have as intricate a conversation as we just had about Whiplash about La La Land. My old boss, I remember he used to tell me that everybody's well, he would talk about it in musical terms, and that is that every band's first album was always really good, and then what came after usually wasn't as good because that first album is the one that they've been in a way, working on for years. Yep. And then once they break out, so I guess not necessarily the first album, but, you know, the breakout album. Once they break out, then the pacing changes. And uh, 
you know, the next album just comes out like a year later or two years later, usually. It's not like something that they've been processing and refining for a decade. So usually the quality drop is noticeable. And uh, I thought of that when as I was watching Whiplash and I was like, I wonder how long, I could be wrong, but you know, I wonder how long Damien Chazelle was working on Whiplash and just like really dreaming about it and thinking of the characters and the scenes and how I'm going to like, you know, highlight this and uh how i'm gonna structure it and then it's like wow he makes it big and i was like fuck what do i do next la la land <laughs> i know it's not like that but it feels like that that's a that's a tremendous analogy like it, it's obviously not the case for all directors but let me tell you about a guy named nicholas wendig rafen uh, <laughs> but yeah that's that's from that same idea this like it honestly feels like Blink One Eighty Two. Like I don't, I don't know. You're not nearly the fan of theirs that I am, but like, patron Dan Brennick is. So watch your words. I Blink One Eighty Two is my favorite band of all time, so I'm not going to speak ill of them. But the idea of listening to Cheshire Cat and then listening to End of the State back to back, it's like, man, something happened in between these two, and it's like this is like raw and guttural, and then it's like there's this really polished thing that feels like it's more meant to appease to everybody and have no controversy to it at all. And that's like Whiplash and La La Land. Blah, blah, bland. Yep. Who, who did you say? Was that John Golson that came I up with that? I think it was John Golson that coined that term. Shout out to John Golson. So yeah, that's a fantastic analogy to make. Definitely the most I've talked about this movie and thought about it. I guess I'm glad now that I know people think that way about it so I don't just brazenly speak about it in public about how... <laughs> About how Fletcher was right to treat uh, <laughs> Neiman the way he did. Hashtag Fletcher was right. Hashtag justice for Fletcher. <laughs> well, I don't know about all that because, like I said, he was kind of dumb and a poor coach. He just kind of lucked out in the end with this. That's why the movie's there. He lucked out with this one particular student. Uh, absolutely deserving of the Academy Award. J.K. Simmons oh, is yeah. phenomenal in this. Uh, like I, I said earlier, fantastic overall uh, ethan hawk and boyhood was great but you know i know we were big trumpeters of that performance but i think this was well deserved the sequence as i mentioned with the car crash and that whole thing seems so cartoony that it really does take it down an entire peg for me and i i settle on a b for this movie uh, overall though it's i'm a big fan it just is more ammunition in the miles teller canon for me so i give this movie a b julio how about yourself uh, first, I'll say that, uh, yeah, I think that Miles Teller is better than most of the movies he makes. <laughs> I think that that's uh, thinking of Fan Forstick and uh, War Pigs, I guess Project X. <laughs> I, I think he's good, too. Second, I would say that after your passionate defense of uh, Fletcher's methods, <laughs> I thought you were going to give this an A. <laughs> oh, no. He, like, he, I, I more just got, like, kind of unnecessarily defensive because <laughs> I I think that people can be a bit hypersensitive to things. And I know there's plenty of examples of where shit like this doesn't work and actually creates problems. But I, when you told me that I was like, well, the movie proves that this worked for him. So I had to make my point, but no, this is this to, to Alex. This is not an A movie. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess in the ultimate reversal, I'm giving it five stars anyway. <laughs> oh, I and yes, the car sequence is ridiculous, but it doesn't matter because I, especially once you've watched it once. Because, like I said, 
it wasn't me doing a bit in Contrarian's Corner. I really, I remember thinking that it was some sort of dream sequence at first. That's how out of place it feels. <laughs> but it's still, man, it's just so good. And uh, even putting aside the discussion that it invites in, in because of the way it's constructed, I mean, fucking J.K. Simmons' performance is amazing. This is the first time yes. that I've come to terms with him taking the Oscar over Ethan Hawke. You know, rewatching Boyhood earlier this year and kind of cooling off on it considerably uh, helped. But also just watching his performance again and just seeing him kill it. Uh, the music is great. Not just Whiplash, just every time the band plays, it's just... And I love the way it's shot. You know, the close-ups of the instruments and the way that it's... I'm I'm glad that they won the Oscar for editing because the way that they, he puts together those sequences is is really good. And uh, Paul Reiser, cherry on top, is just amazing. Uh, and even <laughs> you know, back then she was not Supergirl, and I remember thinking, man, this girl is great. I I wish we'd seen more of her. And now she's had like I think five seasons on the CW. She's probably set for life. Good for her. Yeah, we didn't give her her propers, but for her little role as Nicole, she was fantastic. Yeah, the, the the scene when uh, Andrew is breaking up with her, and she ends up just you know unleashing on him before walking away. That was that's really good. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So five stars on my end. All right. So Julio, that concludes Whiplash. What is on deck for our next episode in the new year? Our first episode of 2021. We're gonna start the new year with Titanic. That is an Alex Mattis request. God knows I didn't yeah. need to sit through three hours of uh, Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, as much as I love Kate Winslet. I'm pretty sure you watched it. You probably screened it the way I did when it got re-released. In 3D? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just remember the trailer said, like, the trailer for the re-release of Titanic in 3D said, like, from the visionary director of Avatar. I was like, what? <laughs> That's so backwards. Titanic <laughs> is great. I own it on Blu-ray, and I will be excited to watch it. I will watch it in two parts, no doubt, much like I did. Blue is the warmest color. I highly doubt there's probably be a three-hour movie that I'll just sit through all in one sitting, but it is great. It is so remarkably cheesy and over-the-top, and I love it. And Julio does not, so it'll be fun. I, I do love Kate Winslet, though. And I mean, there are things that I like. I just, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it. And I, it's been so long. I might surprise myself <laughs> after I watch it. I look forward to it. Uh, now wrapping us up with our plugs, our perennial plugs here on The Contrarians. And we always start with the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand, Take Us Home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo and all the other graphics that you'll see on our uh, Patreon page and also our upcoming merch uh, it's from Hans Rothkieser. You can contact him at Mildemonios on Twitter. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can check out his work on his webpage, Mildemonios.pe. You can email him if you want to request like logos, comics. Uh, you want to talk to him about movies. Uh, his email address is Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. He is a writer. He's a podcaster. He's written a whole bunch of zombie novels. He has four podcasts. If you want Hans content, there is Hans content for you. You just have to uh, decide where you start. 
uh, and his webpage is a good place to to do so. And as always, many thanks and much appreciation to Zoe Perez for helping us with our social media posts, specifically on Instagram, making so many nice, shiny, pretty posts for all our fans and some interactive things too. It is greatly appreciated the work you do for us, Zoe. All right. So thank you once again, Kate and Oti, for the pick. I don't know if Real Talk went in the direction According that you plan. guys expected. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure there's nothing else, as you guys predicted. Uh, Contrarian's Corner was probably something you enjoyed since we talked trash uh, about Whiplash. Katie and OT, thank you. That was a hell of a time discussing that movie. Uh, but that is going to conclude this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Bye.